Well, welcome, and if you're here for the first time, we're in a particularly unique time in our church, which is why you should stick six, because we're in a particularly unique time, because we are actually, for a few weeks, focusing in on who God is calling us to be in this moment of time. We're calling it a time of renewal, looking at who God is shaping us to be for the sake of the city, the unique cultural moment that we're living in. And at the same time, we're renewing and raising funds to update, renovate, fix, and expand our building here. It's a 1950s building with lots of things that needed fixing and also expanding for the sake of mission in our city. So it's, it's an exciting time. It's also a very different time. But every week, we're showing a little film, just a bit of a story of what God has done in this building over the many years. This is a different film, what we've seen the last few weeks. It's about three minutes long. So let's watch this. Just one person telling their story of what God has done in this building. My name is Barry Smith, and I've been here since uh, 1971. One of my best friends was Chuck Morgan. He was a member here at Trinity in the old days for many, many years before my time. We spent maybe 20 years meeting here on Wednesday mornings at six in the morning. He'd bring the coffee and I'd bring the donuts. And we would sit at the back of the church on what was then a pew. And for 30 minutes, we'd talk. And pray and share. And when you do that with somebody who's on the same wavelength you are, then magic happens. And your journey starts to really take, take shape. And it just grew and grew and grew. And he's passed on now, but he had a huge impact on my life. And I like to think I had a big impact on his life. Do you realize what the biggest problem was that we had? You weren't allowed to bring coffee and donuts into the sanctuary. And so if anyone at the old church had seen us, it would have been, oh, <laughs> this is a mortal sin. The good news about vintage is they roll on a very different level. They have chairs, not pews. They got lots of coffee and donuts. They dress differently. They don't wear robes. They're not stuffy, but they're down to earth and genuine and concerned about each person in a very different way, in a very different level. We're about to embark on a significant campaign, a renewal campaign here at church to fix up an old sanctuary, fix up an old admin building, remodel the education building. They're all 60, 70 years old. And you really need to invest the money now so that the next two or three generations will be able to continue what's happening here. And the investment, although it's huge, will pay off significantly in terms of changed lives. The reality is that the more you give, and you don't do it to get, but the more you give, the more God will bless you. So Genesis 12 comes alive when Abraham was blessed so that he could be a blessing. And if that happens, then everything we do will be successful. It's not going to be us. It's going to be God driving the boat. And as long as we put him in charge, 
we have nothing to worry about. We're just the instruments of his love. This building has played an important role since it was built in 1950 of helping people discover Jesus for the first time. I look at the whole city, I think there's millions of people we have to invite to explore Jesus. And so we just have to expand capacity as much as we can, knowing there's a hunger to do that as well. This morning we're gonna look at a topic which I've always struggled with because I was so burnt in church growing up that I left the church for many years over what significantly this topic, which is Jesus's teaching on money. And I hated it because I always felt pastors would teach on this topic in order to get wealthy, that they'd abuse people and their generosity for the sake of themselves. And at the same time as that kind of trigger in my life, we are raising money to fix this building that we can love our city even better. And it seems strange that someone said to me, okay, you've got to teach eventually on Jesus' view of money. And I said, okay, well, here's some caveats. Today's going to be that day as we look at what Jesus teaches about generosity and the life-giving journey of being a generous church. But if you're here for the first time and you're thinking like me, oh, trigger, then relax, don't worry. This is not a hard push or a heretical teaching on just give to get, like treat God like a slot machine. No one's getting rich here at Vintage. But as a church, we come together every now and again, and I think I last spoke on teaching on money back in 1954, probably. Um, it seems a long time ago. But actually, I'm doing a disservice in doing that because Jesus talks about it a lot. And Jesus was not wealthy. But he spoke about it a lot because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And in fact, he links spiritual health to generosity. In other words, if you get generosity right, then probably everything else is going pretty well in your life as well in following Jesus. So this morning, we're going to look at generosity. And so let's pray as we come to this together. Father, we thank you that you're a generous God. And as we look at generosity this morning, what it means to follow you with our time, our talents, and also our treasure. Lord, bring us into the life you have, the joy you have of being a generous people. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, a city in Greece, where he's asking them to give financially for the sake of a church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is suffering. They're uh, suffering with a famine. And Paul is raising funds from various churches to help out this church. So basically, he's fundraising. And let's look at how he uses the gospel to actually cultivate a people of generosity. Let's begin in verse one. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability 
entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves, first of all, to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a, be- made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Look, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We then go to the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 6. Now remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever." Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Paul is teaching and cultivating generosity amongst the church in Corinth. And he begins by reminding them that generosity is godly. That generosity is at the heart of God. It's not something that God does. It's something that God is. That in his very nature, God is a generous God. In verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Generosity is at the heart of God. That famous verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Generosity, like love, is not something God decides to do. It's just how he rolls. He can't help but giving. It's why he emptied himself in his son for our sake. It's why he created you and me in the first place. And it's what he cultivates in us when he welcomes us into the family. See, to become a follower of Jesus is to be healed of our selfishness, our greed, our narcissism, our consumerism, and be more like Jesus and be transformed into his image, not as a duty, but as a delight, not as something forced, but something instinctual. We become generous people. That we become generous, as Paul says, on all occasions. It's just who we are. When you follow Jesus, 
Jesus has an agenda for your life. It's to be healed of brokenness and to become like him. And one of the primary ways the early church throughout all of history has shown their Christ-likeness is that they become radically generous with all that they have. <laughs> Two examples of this. Do you remember the person of Jesus himself pouring out his life constantly, giving his time, healing people, helping people, including people? He was pouring out his life all the time. And then when he poured out his spirit into the early church at Pentecost, we think in these great charismatic moments that the fruit of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit would be miracles and signs and wonders. And yes, but Luke highlighted something else as a fruit of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And in Acts 2.42, it says they gathered together and they shared everything they had in common. And they gave out of their wealth to those who were in need. Christ-likeness is to become a generous people, to be released from clenching on to the things that we have, and to find ourselves in trusting our Heavenly Father that He becomes our security, that we may become a generous people. I was reading an article the other day on why the early church grew so much in a very hostile environment. And the author, historian, said this, if you go back and read the complaints that pagan Romans wrote about the first Christians, their biggest complaint, their primary observation about Christians was always about how exceedingly generous they were. The way they gave their money away the way they welcomed strangers, the way they cared for widows and lepers, the way they rescued infants left to die in the fields. Their generous lifestyle, not their doctrine, not their music, not their facilities, is what convinced unbelievers that Christ must be raised from the dead. Generosity is who we are as a people. And yet what Paul does in this letter is he says, look, this is who we are, but this is who we are to become, because generosity is always a journey of growing into Christ-likeness. In verse 7, he says, look, you excel in lots of things, which is awesome, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in love, but I'm going to challenge you to also excel in giving. In other words, you've got a long way to go. The Macedonian church, he says, look, they're, they're killing it right now. They're like begging to give. He says, they're urgently pleading, please, Paul, let us give to help the church in Jerusalem. You, not so much. But that's okay. I don't know about you, but I've got a long way to go in generosity to be like Christ. Paul is saying here that everyone's on a journey, whether you're at the very beginning of, oh my word, I'm supp- God is calling me to be generous with what I have. Or you've been actually doing this a long time. We all have a long way to go. And so I want you to relax this morning and maybe you're feeling, gosh, I've, I actually haven't begun a journey of generosity. I'm holding on to everything I have because I need everything I have. And that's Okay. Hopefully, you'll see that Jesus is inviting you in a direction of generosity. 
It's not where you are that matters. It's your direction that matters. And I think I, every time I come to this topic of generosity, I realize I'm not where I want to be. And rather than shame and guilt, I, which is the lies of the enemy, I actually go, no, but Lord, I want to go further. I want to grow in generosity. Paul really hits the nail on how we become Christ-like, how we become a generous people in this third point, which is the aha moment for me when I was studying about generosity, and that's this. Generosity is stewardship. Generosity is stewardship. Now, generosity is not God asking me to give other people some of my money or to invest in other things, my money. Throughout the Bible, particularly in the teachings of Jesus and elsewhere, what we see is God changes the paradigm and teaches us that it's not that at all. And in fact, God has invited us into a vocation, a position, a joy, a purpose of stewarding his resources for the sake of others. Now, the paradigm he shows us is that when you join my family, you're kind of like now in the family business. Everything is still owned by God, but he allows us to invest it on his behalf. We are his investment managers, investing where he wants us to invest. Every time see Paul in this passage talks about becoming a generous giver, he never says, look, God, God would really love you to give to other people some of your money. You know, all that stuff you own God is like going, man, would you please share it? That's not the paradigm. Paul is picking up on the paradigm of stewardship throughout all of Scripture, where Paul says, look, God has blessed you abundantly that you can actually bless others. He says in verse 10 of chapter 9, he has supplied you with seed that you may invest in others. He has enriched you in every way that you can enrich others. Constantly he's saying, like, what you have is from God. And throughout all of Scripture, God never relinquishes ownership rights to the things he gives us, but allows us to enjoy them, not only for ourselves, but also to invest in others. I mean, for years, this, for me, felt wrong. Because, hang on a minute, God, you didn't work 80 hours a week last week, I did right? That paycheck, I don't see you doing an all-nighter. I did that, right? So we think, no, we own this stuff. And yet what we realize as you come before God is that even our capacity to earn money is a gift from God. I mean, God gave us the capacity to be employed, to work hard, to live in this cultural moment where we actually can get a job. David in the Old Testament, when he's praying about giving and raising money again for the temple in the Old Testament, he prays this, he says, everything comes from you and we have given you only what is yours. And Jesus picks up on this theme of we are only stewards of his resources where Jesus talks about a vineyard and constantly uses the analogy of a vineyard throughout all of his teachings. And he always says, we are never the owners of the vineyard. 
that he's the owner. And then he very clearly says, at times, we're the tenants to look after it, to cultivate it, to share it with others. But we are always given things from God to manage on his behalf. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. Generosity, therefore, is stepping into our vocation, not as consumers of blessings, but distributor of God's stuff. That is who I am. That is the dignity and the privilege of being called into his family, that I'm now in the family business to distribute the father's wealth to those in need. As Abraham was, we're blessed to be a blessing. And the worst thing that you can do, therefore, is to consume in your role as a steward. I mean, imagine if you gave all your savings to an asset manager and investor, and and you gave your money to him and said, look, I want you to invest this on my behalf. I'm kind of a low-risk kind of guy, so get some low-risk investments and invest it in those things. Then a year later, you go back to him and go, hey, how's my investment going? And he goes, oh, bad news. I really needed a new car. And the staff, we had a little retreat. And we needed some new offices. And so we just thought you wouldn't mind, but we used your money on ourselves. I mean, that's called fraud, folks. <laughs> and we believe it. And in some ways, generosity begins with, oh my gosh, I'm not just a consumer of God's stuff. God gives me the privilege and dignity of a purpose and a meaning to join him in distributing God's love and his mercy and his healing and his gospel and his resources to those around me. It's not my stuff. I remember one friend and speaker in England called J. John telling a story which really helped me understand this. He said, look, there's a man who went to LAX, went to the airport, and he was flying out, and he got there a bit early, so he got into the terminal, went to one of the terrible stores there, and he bought a coffee and a bag of, like, mini donuts. Just felt a little bit of a treat. And he went back to the cafe area, and it was all full, but uh, no spare table, but he found one table with one guy and a spare seat, so he thought, you know what, can I sit here? He went, yes. So he sat down and took off his coat and put his stuff down and put his bag down, put his coffee on the table, and then relaxed, went, oh, I got like 20 minutes. And he reached into the bag of donuts on the table and took a bite and just started to relax. At which point, something shocking happened. The man across from the other side of the table saw the bag of donuts and kind of reached in. <laughs> picked up a donut and ate the donut. I mean, this man was incredulous, but in a very LA kind of way, didn't say anything, but got very passive aggressive with his look. And I kind of scooted the bag of donuts towards him and just kind of thought, who are you stealing my bag of donuts? But the, he pulled it toward him, but then all of a sudden, the man just looked again, smiled, and reached way across the table into his bag and got out another donut. I mean, this man was, he was speechless with the, how rude this man was for eating his donuts. 
He literally now kind of smothered his bags. This man wouldn't steal anymore and started to eat. And there was one donut left eventually. And the man from across the table kind of stood up and was going to go to his gate, put on his jacket. But just before he left, he went over, reached into the bag again and got the last donut out. Broke it in half, ate half, and put the other one back in and winked at the guy and smiled and walked away. I mean, this guy's who on earth are, who is this man? So, still in shock at what had happened, he then hears his gate go, and his plane is boarding. So he puts on his coat, picks up his coffee, and reaches down to get his bag. And then, on top of his suitcase, was his unopened bag of donuts <laughs> that he had bought, and he realized... He was complaining that this man was stealing his donuts, but he'd been sharing his donuts with him, and he'd been eating his donuts the whole time. They were not his donuts. God owns all the donuts. Whatever size bag of donuts you have, they're his. And he goes, look, I want to give them to you, and many of them I have for you to enjoy. But like one of them, just, like, just take, say you have 10, like take one, and God says, look, why don't you give that away? Someone else is hungry, why don't you give that away? Just whatever you do, don't eat the whole bag. Don't think I've got 10, therefore how can I eat all 10? Recognize that not all 10 are for you. In fact, they're all his, but in his graciousness and love, he says, I want you to be blessed. But part of the bag is not for you. It's to help others. That's why Paul talks about the difference between seed and bread in that passage. In chapter nine, he says, look, some of you, some of what you have is called seed. Here it is. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and then bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. So you, in your bag of donuts, let's mix metaphors for a minute. In your bag of donuts, you're going to have, some of the donuts will be, seed, will be bread for you to eat and enjoy. Give me your daily bread. God wants to care for you, provide for you. But some of the donuts won't be bread for you. They'll be seed for others, that you are to invest in others. And God does not want you to eat seed. Part of what you have is seed that you invest in what he wants you to invest in. You're his asset manager. God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Well, yeah, have some of it to care for you and your family and put food on the table. Awesome. But some of it is to invest in others, to meet the needs of others. What percentage is that? Some people go, well, it's 10%, one out of every 10 donut. I think the New Testament doesn't really say that personally. I can see arguments both ways. I just go, God, what do you want? And who gets the one? Is it just your church or is it other nonprofits? It's just the kingdom. Wherever God says, invest. Wherever you see the need. The key thing here is that it's not all yours to consume for yourself but we have the delight and joy to invest in others. 
I remember God teaching Lizzie and I this many times in our marriage, but one time in particular, to see that, oh, what we have is to help others, that someone is praying somewhere to God for help, and God's answer is through someone's wallet, right? Very rarely does he do manna from heaven, right? That you have in your wallet, in your bank account, or wherever it is, money that God has said, this stuff is an answer to prayer for someone else, right? Don't buy something with that. Give to meet someone's prayer. We were driving on the road in Vancouver, Canada. We used to live there. And there's a family in our church we knew were struggling financially. And Lizzie and I, I think it's probably her, because she's the more generous one, said, uh, I think we should give what we have to them. I said, really? She said, yep. Yeah. When? She said, now. So we just got cash and went around to their house. We wanted to do it anonymously. We didn't want to kind of say, hey, here we are. Um, so we just literally tiptoed up to their door and put cash through the letterbox. And just went away. We just went away. Well, it was interesting. A few weeks later in church, this family stood up and kind of shared just a great thing that had happened, a story of Jesus in their life. And the story was literally this. We'd been going through a financially tough time, and we got the kids together one day, and we said to them, look, this is tough, but we wanted to bring our kids into it and pray together that God would provide for us financially to pay the bills and whatever else was happening. And we were all around the kitchen table. And as we started to pray... For God to provide financially, we heard this noise. And we looked over to the front door, and then we saw cash coming through the letterbox, <laughs> falling onto the ground. And the kids were going, no way! What's going on? And they said it's exactly what we needed for that moment. See, their prayer was met through the generosity where people said, not everything we have is for us. We're stewards of God's stuff. He blesses us by keeping a lot of it and enjoying it, but a lot of it, he wants us to go, God, where do you want me to distribute your things? Not everything is for you. There's a story which we say every time I speak on this topic. My wife gives me permission to tell, us, tell this story. Um, where it really is, it's kind of what you have is not all for you. When I met Lizzie, uh, she was doing a conference. She used to run conferences for Alpha in America. We met up in America, and we were in Vegas, actually. And I said, look, let's go to the Grand Canyon. I'm not really keen on this Vegas place. Let's go to the Grand Canyon. And so it's a bit of a four-hour drive, so I picked her up. And I said, let's get some breakfast for the journey. And we, I mean, America was the land of milk and honey, as far as I was concerned, and particularly hot and fresh Krispy Kreme donuts. <laughs> It's like, we'd never discovered these things before. And so I said, let's get some Krispy Kreme. And so we went to the hot and fresh place, and we got a dozen donuts for the journey. There and back, we thought, all day, you know, we won't eat all 12, but, you know, it's so cost-effective to get 12. And so we got, we set out on the road, and we each had a donut to begin with, and it was like, oh, it's so good, but, you know, let's not go overboard. We got a long day ahead and a long journey back. So I had a donut, then, I don't know, about two, or th two hours or so into the journey, I said, oh, Lizzie, can I have another donut? And like, kind of put my hand across. And there was like, no response. <laughs> I went, Lizzie, um, have a donut. Can you get me a donut? And I, no response. I looked across at Lizzie, can I have a donut? 
and then looked at her kind of rather pale greenish face with a bit of like glazing dripping down <laughs> and an empty box of donuts in front of her. She'd eaten all the donuts. And all my, I thought two things at the time. I thought, oh my word, you're, are you okay? And at the same time, I thought, they weren't all for you. <laughs> How could you eat? They're not all for you. And I gotta say, sometimes I think my behavior, I can feel God saying to me, yeah, it's not all for you. There's a lot of people who need some of the donuts. And generosity is stepping into our vocation of going, God's giving me a lot. And we all have a lot relatively in the world. But the reason is not that we can just buy more. The reason is actually that we can go, God, I get to join you in meeting other people's needs. Generosity is about stewardship. And then linked to that, generosity is therefore surprising joy. See, we're told in this culture, joy is through getting, receiving, and consuming. Jesus comes and says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you'll find the joy in the life of God as you step into your purpose of generosity, meeting the needs of others. The Macedonian church modeled this. It says in that, remember the, when, in that early passage, it says, they urgently pleaded in overwhelming joy to give to the church in Jerusalem. It wasn't begrudging, it wasn't, mm, I'm a steward. <laughs> no, they had tasted of the joy that comes when you join God in blessing others. This is where life comes from. This is not begrudging obedience. This is God saying, you will find a life that is well lived and life to the full and joy and peace when you actually realize that you've been given things to give to others. It's countercultural, I know. But as one person said, the Dead Sea is dead not because there's no, nothing flowing into it, but there's nothing flowing out of it. I've never met a miserable giver. I've met many miserable misers. See, money, Jesus says, it lies to us all the time. That if we pursue it, we will be secure and happy and peaceful. In other words, if we turn it from a good thing into a God thing, it will become the foundation of our lives. And yet we know every every analysis out there, Christian, non-Christian, says that it's just that is a lie. Money is good. Poverty is not good. That's why Jesus came to give. But money never fulfills its promises for security, safety, happiness. In fact, what I've seen in my own life, as I've pursued money, not as a good thing, but as a God thing, I've turned less into a happy person, into a workaholic, competitive with colleagues to get ahead. Anxious, thinking, is my money secure? Depressed if money doesn't come in. Money is a good thing, but it's a terrible God thing. 
And Jesus says, when you move it from God to good and put Jesus as God and actually follow his way of dealing with money and becoming a generous giver, you will find the life that you so longed for. That's why this raising money for this campaign is not something I'm embarrassed about because I'm excited about giving to the local church. I'm excited about seeing this building be restored and renewed and expanded for another 100 years. I want more of those stories of what Barry did at the back with his donuts, illegally bringing them into the sanctuary. (laughs) I want more stories like I've seen my kids feel at home here in a chaotic city, where my teenagers grow in Christ, that they can go out into the playgrounds and love others but be secure in their faith, where singles can meet each other and get married, where people can be cared for in their loneliness and disappointments, where marriages can be healed and restored, where people can serve the city and be equipped to be missionaries in our context. I love the local church. It's messy, but that's because I'm messy and you're messy. But at the heart of it, I love the local church. And I love seeing what God is doing here. I get front row seats to the life that is happening here. And I go, Lord, I want to invest in this place. Not only for this generation, but for generations to come. Every time I do Alpha, and we welcome people across the city just to explore Jesus in safety and without judgment, I go, Lord, there is nothing I want to give my life to more than this. The joy of generosity. On March 26th, we will be coming to kind of pledge for this renewal of this building. It's an old building. We have to actually raise seven and a half million to fix it up. There's a building next door that has got way too much asbestos that we can't use, that we want to renovate this place for the sake of mission. And we're asking everyone, if you're part of our family, to go, what, Lord, are you calling me to give? What donuts in the bag are you calling me to give? over and above what you normally give, and over 24 months, because it's not whatever donuts you have left, because in my case, I might have eaten all the donuts I have now. But no, the next 24 months, what do you want me to give? And I'm going to echo what Paul says in how we should go about the next two weeks to think about what we want to pledge. In verse 7, Paul says this, each of you should give what you decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. So there's four things I want to leave you with. First of all, prayer. He says, you decide prayerfully what you want to give. Just go away and say, God, here's my donuts. Over the next 24 months, I've got this amount of donuts. What do you want me to give? It's up to you and God. Number two, voluntarily. No one's coercing, no pressure, no pushiness. That's why I left the church. This is just between you and God, and I want it to be completely voluntarily. And if at the moment you go, I don't feel God is calling me to give, that's great. No one knows what you're going to give. This is between you and God. If you go, yeah, I'm actually more in need right now, then great. We have a benevolence fund that people have given to that we can help you. Maybe you need help right now. 
has just completely voluntarily. Thirdly, cheerfully. He said, God loves a cheerful giver, which means we're not coming going, oh, all right then. <laughs> no, it's we've come with joy because we've fallen in love with what generosity does. To us, it grows us, it keeps us from worshiping money as God. It's a spiritual discipline to go, I'm always going to worship God, not money. But also, I want you to ask, God, why am I giving this? That you can fall in love with the vision God has for the local church in Los Angeles. I want you to pray about what impact will my gift have? That you come and go, I want to invest. And then finally, faithfully. And I put a dash there because what Paul says at the end is, look, when you give, you can have faith that God will take care of you. He's your dad. The whole of Christian life is about pouring out and God's got you back. And he'll take care of you. It's actually one of the greatest disciplines of, of faith in going, I'm going to give because I know I've got a father who's going to take care of me. I'm going to end with a story which is a foundational one in our community here at Vintage. And it taught me a lot about generosity. When we lived in Raleigh, we were leading a church there and we were coming out to plant in L.A., we needed to raise money because there was like one or two people here, Amy Ho and others who were so amazing, but we didn't have anyone come out with us from Raleigh and I had to raise funds. And it wasn't going so well and nobody seemed to want to come from Raleigh to LA. And then one day into the office came an elderly lady called Betty who I loved dearly and she'd lost her husband a few years ago and I'd had the privilege of doing the funeral. Jim and Betty were incredible servants of Jesus. And Betty said, Gare, I've prayed, and I just don't think I can move with you to Los Angeles. I was like, Betty, I know, that's totally fine. But she said, but I want to be involved. And if Jim was here, he'd want to be involved too. We believe in you and Lizzie, and we have a heart for the gospel in Los Angeles. We believe in what you're doing. She said, but I'm, as you know, I'm not wealthy, but I have got something that I want to invest. And then she reached into her bag... And out of a bag, she took this, a jewelry box. And immediately, my heart went into my throat and thought, no way. I was like, please, Betty, don't do this. And she said, Jim gave me this. It's probably one of the most, the only valuable things I have. I don't wear it. I'm reminded of, it was Jim's gift to me. But I know Jim would want me and be happy with me to say, we don't want this stuck on the shelf. We want to invest in what you're doing. Can you sell this and invest it in this church plant? She was really sincere. I was a knucklehead and said, no. I'm not taking jewelry from old women. I mean, that was my thought. I didn't say that to her, <laughs> but that's my thought, right? That's my thought. It's like, no. I mean, talk about being canceled. I thought, no. <laughs> and I thought, she'll make you regret this. You know, this, no, this will not go well. So she, I said, I can't, Betty. And she pleaded for a bit. I just said no. And she left, actually, really disappointed. But I, I just can't do it. The next day, Betty came back. This time she came back with her son, who was a financial advisor. <laughs> and we sat down in the office. And he looked at me and said, Gare, we've spoken as a family. This is not my mum doing something crazy. 
we agree that this is what Jim, my dad, and my mum would want to do. She wants to invest. She wants to play a part. She can't move. She can pray, but she wants to invest. And then he said, do not rob my mother of the joy of being involved. So I took it. Again, we all were crying together. And when I see the fruit of what God's done here the last 10 years, when I see people coming to know Jesus, when I see kids being raised full of faith, when I see marriages being restored, when I see us going out to the city on mission, when I see this fruitfulness, every now and again, I'm reminded, Betty did that. Betty did that. And I'm taught again, God, I want to be more like Jesus, but if I could just be a bit more like Betty, I'd be happy. Let's stand together. So Jesus, as we worship you, you own it all. And you poured out your life for us that we might come home and join you in pouring out your love and provision to those in need. And so we just worship you, the God who gave it all up for us. We're going to worship now. If our prayer team will be down the front, just come forward for prayer. But let's worship together. <laughs>